would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. We began this section last week, of course, and completing the Sermon on the Mount and continuing through the Gospel. And we begin by seeing a sequence of healing such as we saw last week. But this healing that we see this morning is most unique uh, because of the one who comes imploring Christ. And then there's a second one we're not going to spend much time on this morning as well uh, that we will touch on briefly. And uh, that is the uh, healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Well, let's hear God's word. We begin at verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such a great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Well, it is a phenomenal passage and it is a phenomenal passage be, not just because of the account that we have here of, of Peter's mother-in-law, but obviously the account of the centurion coming to Jesus. Now, I, I want to, and I don't do this often. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever done it, but I, I want to deal with the last one first. Uh, I looked at the passage, and I was thinking ahead uh, and, and thinking, well, it, it's kind of a passage. It's a standalone passage. It doesn't warrant uh, a whole uh, sermon on the passage, per se, uh, but it does require our attention. But at the same time, I, I, I found it so phenomenal, the previous account, and it is highly evangelical and a little more uh, evangelistically oriented than the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. So I'm going to do the last one first and the first one last, uh, and uh, we'll do it that way, and you can attribute it to me being left-handed and doing things backwards. But uh, it's important for us to see and recognize as we, we read this, this passage here, uh, of something that 
uh, it's not so much the healing uh, that's important here. And it's, it's not so much the fact that this is Peter's mother-in-law. It's, it's more the, the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, when I say that, I'm not have a, a beat up on Catholic Day or anything here. We're just stating this because it's, it's really important that uh, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church uh, forever, it seems, has been celibacy and uh, the, the reality that the, the, uh, the priest is to be uh, a man who is unmarried because in actuality he's enter, entering into marriage uh, with the church and so forth. And so it is at least an item of curiosity that Peter, who is alleged to be the first pope uh, of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, should have in his possession a mother-in-law. And of course, the only way in which you qualify, I, I speak from experience, the only way in which you qualify for a mother-in-law is to get married. So here we have this one who is alleged to be the first pope of the church. In actuality, he has a mother-in-law. He was married and had a mother-in-law, and she was a sick mother-in-law. And obviously, uh, there was enough care about her that this is where they find themselves landing at Peter's home or Peter's uh, in, into his home. And you notice something as well, that if you read this, and it's a bit of an inference perhaps, and you might want to question on it, but it tells us Jesus came to Peter's home. And it tells us at that point that he saw Peter's mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. So at least you have a, a look at this that this is the home, it's, on, it's either Peter's personal home or it's Peter's family home, but whatever case it is, we find that his mother-in-law is, is uh, no doubt living with them and is sick, and Jesus comes and ministers to her and grants her healing, and uh, then she's up, and of course, being a woman, the next thing is uh, she's up and she's back to work again. And uh, we wouldn't say what would happen if it was a man that was healed. Uh, I'll leave the guesswork to you on that one. But we have that fascinating snippet from that, this, this account that shows us uh, this particular area that has become very large dogma uh, for, for centuries, obviously, in the Roman Catholic Church and is actually up for debate and dispute once again in our day and age. And I don't know if somewhere along the line they'll discover Peter's mother-in-law or not. But we have uh, out of this the beginnings of Jesus establishing a home base, if you will, and it's Capernaum. And in verse 5, we find that he enters Capernaum. And if you love geography as I do, and if you have a good, good Bible with good maps, uh, then it's always interesting to sort of follow, particularly when you're looking at the life of Christ. Or if you have an older King James Thompson Chain Reference Bible, if you have that, uh, excellent, because you have a, a little part of the, the, the wanderings of Christ, the route that Christ chose, uh, in, in ministering, and, and, and you have it clearly mapped out, and it's very helpful reading if you're doing that kind of research. Well, here he is going to Capernaum, and this fascinating individual comes and encounters Jesus. Now, there's something important to see about him, and it's this, that in our day and age, as was his day and age, strength and courage and, and, and power and, and the, the personal presence of a person was all important. One just didn't helter-scouter become a centurion because he happened to be uh, in, in the Roman army for a period of time and to say, well, it's time to make him a centurion. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was in command of a hundred soldiers. 
And this man was the, he was the fighting machine. He was the soldier, soldier, the epitome of what a soldier is to be. And it's rather interesting that if we were to list what's a soldier to be, and we want him to be brave and courageous, and we want him to be a strong leader, and we want him to be uh, a man of his word, that when he says we're going to do something, we're going to do it. And you start to attach to, to what this man is to be. Another interesting characteristic of the centurions was this. They were highly disciplined, and they expected everybody else to be highly disciplined as well. And they were oftentimes noted for being particularly brutal in the treatment of the soldiers who were under them. And that would oftentimes lead to the fact that they were brutal to those to whom they were dealing with. Uh, in Rome, it was do what the Romans tell you to do. You call Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, gives that, you know, if somebody comes along and in all likelihood it's a Roman soldier that says, take my pack and carry the mile. This was not unusual for that type of event to take place. And Jesus says, go the extra mile. And so this is a man that gives commands. This is a man that is a powerful man. This is a man that's used to giving orders. This is a man that is used to getting a response of obedience to all that he encounters. That's him. But the fascinating thing is this. As he comes, he's coming to Jesus. And this man that is in the eyes of his soldiers a conqueror, and most certainly in the eyes of the Jews a conqueror, and Jesus is going away. And I would venture to say that perhaps the larger body of people that heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount were in all likelihood Jewish, and Jesus is coming to this area, and they were following along, and out of the blue comes a centurion. And you notice something about him. This man who is loyal and uncompromising comes, and as he comes, it's almost when you get the flow of the passage, it's one of those where he's talking before he's actually come to a complete stop. Because when, when Matthew writes, he says this, the centurion came to him imploring him. And the word imploring that is given here, the, the inflection of it is the fact that he is continually saying something to Jesus, although he's not, not stated here exactly what is being said at the point. But it's that Jesus is coming and the centurion sees him coming and he's walking towards Jesus. And as he is walking towards Jesus, he is speaking to him already. So that's the, the picture that we have here from this passage. And so he comes and he is imploring Jesus. Can you imagine that? This Gentile, the soldier, the soldier, soldier is coming towards Christ and is asking and seeking something. And so as a result of it, we get the picture of what's being asked for here. And he says this in verse 6, My servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now, this is interesting as well, as the whole passage is. The reality is this. This is a slave in his household. The word that is used for servant uh, here is the word pace, which basically means the son of a servant. He had a household that had some size to it, where in the household there was a, a family, and the family had a servant. And, and so the family were probably servants as well, obviously. And this is the child, the young man, who is a servant as well. So here's the family under the centurion, and here is the son of a slave, and he is sick, and the centurion comes, and he's concerned about him. And the interesting fact is this. 
The concern that he has about him shows that this man is particularly rare because really when it comes right down to it, servants were a dime a dozen. Why not just get a new servant? You have a sick servant, you're a Roman, why not get another servant? Go lay hold of somebody else, gather somebody else. This man is of unique character to the man that he was as a soldier. This is a soldier that has a real heart for the individual that is in his home. He is a slave, he's very sick, he's no doubt close to dying, and here is the centurion speaking as he is coming to Christ, seeking that the Lord will respond. He knows the condition of the servant. There's obviously a relationship here. He doesn't just say, oh, my servant's sick. He describes that he is severely tormented. He is he's paralyzed. And he's coming to Jesus. And he's seeking the hand of Jesus. And he's coming with with humility, and it's a contrast, isn't it? Because this is a leader of men coming to the Lord as a beggar. And how unbecoming that would be for his soldiers under him to see him going on in such a way. And what a strange thing it would be to see as a Jew, through Jewish eyes, to see this centurion coming to the Lord and seeking and imploring the Lord to act on his behalf. But that's exactly the picture we have here. We see a compassionate centurion with a slave, a son of his household, a slave son of slaves in the household, and he comes and he is seeking the Lord to act. And notice his concern and notice his request. He says he's lying paralyzed, and in verse 8, we'll jump ahead for a moment, he is humility, worthiness. But as you follow the conversation, interruption that takes place, and here's the interruption. As he's saying this, is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus and Jesus says, and heal him. The picture of the compassion. He doesn't need to get, he doesn't need to get the deal. This is an opportunity. And Jesus shows his readiness to go in the context of a Gentile who is for him. Jesus, his willingness to go home of a Gentile and to promise healing of this in sick. He may have been a Jew as well. Uh, but obviously, Jewish slave crumbled under Alexander the Great, uh, crumbled into a state of decadence. And it a lot of time and a lot of punishment uh, upon these people to try and get them in order and to make them in pro interactive people. And a lot of they gathered up a lot of fellow Gentiles, a lot of Greeks, and, and had them trained to be servants because the Greek doing much of anything. Over, incidentally, think of Acts 17 that we mentioned this morning in our, our, our Bible study, that when Paul went into Athens, the great Greek city, and there was a large amount of people uh, background, but he's a slave and he's sick, and Jesus expresses his willingness to go and his guarantee, we know one thing for sure. And the centurion, this, and Lord, for you, my roof. Matic. Our culture, think through of our culture and how brand is and how self-culture is and how me is our culture. We have a sign upstairs, bulletin board downstairs, sit upstairs as we have a wanna on Wednesday nights. Sign says meaning. Wonderful sign. Every once in a while I never see it down here. We're not to be whiners. We're not zoomed. We're not me. And all the rest of the stuff that's so carried our culture humble. And you, 
of, of Moses, humble man Moses, of Pharaoh of Egypt, of man Pharaoh was, Daniel, and what a humble was, and think of Nebuchadnezzar, a proud man Nebuchadnezzar was, and you begin to see there is a, a, a great divide that is to be in our culture. And that is that we, as God's people, are to be a humble people. We're to be humble before God, and we're to be humble servants of one another. And the world is offering the absolute antithesis to it that we're to be proud and we're to be brash and we're to be in your face and you're to know exactly how I feel and I better feel or pity you. And here is this soldier, this powerful man, leader of a fighting machine, a hundred men. Culture's a bit like that. And this is who he's coming to. And he, I'm not worthy of you to come into my house. The house of a soldier, a centurion, had living. It wasn't that he one room shacks. This man, this man, this man. Jesus, if you're ever going to receive Jesus into your heart, you must come humbly. That's completely the opposite of our culture. We must bow to him. We must honor him. We must surrender to him. The terms of surrender to Jesus are non-negotiable. It is absolute surrender. And here we have this fascinating picture of this man. And he describes himself. And it's a fascinating description because everybody could say, oh, that's him all right. Notice what he says in verse 8, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. You say my servant will be healed and under authority. Soldiers under me. And go and he goes, or it's his only chance to refuse an order. The last day that he'll be, it's the last day that he'll. You don't say no to the centurion. You don't wish he washed with the. I've got to find a job and no, on and on and on. You say, well, kid, you know, you're only 11. And he's contrasting it to Jesus. It's a fascinating contrast, is it not? As we examine the humility of this man. And he, he says, Lord. Just say a word, just speak, and he will be healed. And we'll touch on his faith in just a moment. But notice then, I am, and this and it's a fascinating taking us to. It's amazing, I think. He says, for I am a man authority. Fascinating. If a man under authority, headquarters in Rome, so-and-so, and, and he's under so-and-so, but he so am. And I think this is absolutely miraculous. Authority, who grasp of this? But somehow, in the kindness of God's grace, he had understanding. I'm a man under authority. My paycheck comes from First National Bank of Rome. I have authority. There's my paycheck. Here's my position. Here's all the things that I've done. That's my authority. But I also, I recognize you're under authority. He sees himself as under authority, and he's humbled, and he draws this amazing, amazing characterization of Jesus. You're under authority. I say go, they go. I say come, they come. I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now you're saying, well, you're probably the only one amazed. Uh-uh. No, so was Jesus. The faith of this man that says, he's just, that's all. We know what Jesus' ministry was, and we saw it last week. We made mention of it. I'll just refer you to it again. That in verse 23 of, of uh, Matthew chapter 4, this is before the sermon, 
in, in verse 23, it tells us Jesus was going through all, all, all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And, and the, the news spread about him, street as it were. They, they didn't have the newspaper. They didn't have the internet. They, they weren't, you know, Jesus didn't have a blog. The news about Jesus was out there, and people knew, and this centurion knew. He was in the know as to what was going on, although he could not with the accuracy of a, a theologian say, well, I understand all of this. I've searched the scriptures. I understand the scriptures, and I understand this is who it is. He didn't have that, but he had enough to know that verse 10, what is this? Now when Jesus, he must. followers are there and we have those wonderful interruptions and Matthew probably highlights them better than anyone else in the gospels where you have these interruptions that take place in ministry where Jesus will stop and sometimes it'll say he's turning to his disciples or other times to say he stopped and he said to the multitudes so there was them out there and there were these here and there were those back there and every once in a while you have this picture of Jesus sort of stopping in his tracks and, and addressing a part of the crowd. Well, this is this moment of marveling when Jesus says to those who were following. So the multitudes, and we know that they had come off the mountain, and the large crowds are described in verse 1 of chapter 8, were following him. This becomes a stop moment. And I sort of like in my mind's eye, or the mind I have, but you sort of so forth, he says this. It's great faith about his own people, talking about the Jews. And of course, we a packing order. We know that born into a nice, and we know that he ministers and the first to the Jews. We end commandments in the stone. They worship where God and I used to do whatever we want. Ordered their worship in the old covenant to do. They had, they had the whole, the, the soldiers of, 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 of prophets. That was the army that they had. And the prophets came to them one by one by one, if you will. And they declared God to them. Jewish followership, and Jesus stops and turns and he says, I have Israel. He's talking about his own people. Not be surprised that he came unto his own. And you really, no, that's not what amazes Jesus. <clears throat> Pardon me. What amazes Jesus is the man's faith. I don't need you to come to my house. Lord, if you just speak, he'll be healed. Just say that you, I don't want to take you off route. I don't want to take you to wherever it is that he lives. You certainly had no reason to be ashamed. I just need you to. I just need you. Yeah, I know it is. It is. The Lord puts you on no map. And we know life and the dust. Those times where the next. And you almost think, what happened next? But I know it's going to be. And they say, well, that was really bad. I think I'm. Marvel at his faith, but Jesus is going to take it further. Notice the centurion himself is, but then the centurion believes is infinite. A hundred men. Jesus has complete sovereign authority. And when Jesus, that's the contract. You're in charge of these, none of them are, that's your And in combination with that, tied that, of Jesus, absolute, and his in an undeserving way. This is not mentioned specifically. And as Jesus, he says, 
I've never seen faith like this. But what comes next is really a gospel word. And it may not seem to be, it really is. And notice what it says. It says this. I say to you, verse 11, that many will come from east and west. Now, when he's talking east and west, he's not talking geographically the Maritimes in Western Canada. Nor is he talking in terms of geographically. This is it. Jerusalem was the heart of the faith. And there are people that are coming from the east and they're coming from the west. And if I'm backwards, we'll do it that way. But they're coming from all over. But they're not Jewish. You see, the benefits, and you have to look ahead here. The benefits are this. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, go into Acts for a second. That's Matthew, but then jump into Acts. Beginning at Jerusalem and Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus doesn't give up a ethnic Jews and says is this. He says, the outsiders from the West are going to have a place. Abel, Isaac, Jacob was a big, that was important. They are be important. Jesus is coming to the table. This is a guess who's moment for those of you that are Christian. Guess who's table. These, they don't belong in your, they belong in my mind. Paul illustration, doesn't he? The tree and how they have been engrafted in. Says, where are they sitting? And lo and behold, he says, they will be seated. Isaac, Jacob, of heaven. And then he gets tragic judgment. And notice what, then, but the sin, no benefits. They had everything going for them. You read through, and I was reminded of it last Saturday night at the uh, Bible Club banquet, and the uh, Mr. Whitehead's speaking on, and you recall we mentioned it last week, that the promises of God were made to his people, and the promises were, if you obey, it will go well with you. If you disobey, all the cursings, all the curses that are spout out in Deuteronomy, in those closing chapters in Deuteronomy following, all the curses will come upon it of God and disrespect of God and curse of God. If you do that, if you turn to other gods, which they did, they started worshiping, started doing exactly what they were doing. And Jesus says, they were the strangers and sojourners. They were, they were out there. They were the Gentile nations. And now he's his own people. And it comes a word of warning and should have been taken as such. And it says, the sons of the kingdom will bow to him and honor him and receive him. I know a little bit about my family tree and kind of avoid the family tree like a plague sometimes. And you have those in your family and we have them in our family. And you say to yourself, are they really part of us? I don't know. But one thing I do know is this. That we Jewish blood, you kind of benefit. The Jews had this for a significant number of you. Of God's parents at church, Sunday school, like grace. You get drowned everywhere. And you've had that all your life. Those blessings. Those blessings. We understand that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. We do have our best by that. Living in a nation that all of that. A nation is squandering that. Doesn't lie, believe Ottawa. And 
in Toronto. We could narrow it down in Toronto. It's like the plague. But the unsaved are not called to be salt and light, are they? That's our domain. Paul was in jail. The government and Jesus gives this stern warning early in his ministry when he says, The sons of the king are, will be darkness because they heard glory. He did come unto his own, and his own not. Carol of and Lord of the Gospel. But very notice Lord's ministry, this man. Turian who comes imploring our Lord in Christ the healer. He believed they speak a word and healed. And Jesus and said, as you have, and this was healed at that. It is a gospel word, isn't it? It shall be done as you believe. And the gospel comes. And it comes indiscriminately. I, you've never been to a service, I trust. I've never been to one. And I've never presided over one where I would stand up or the preacher would stand up and say, well, we just have a sermon for the elect this morning. If you're not elect, get out. Huh? Did you ever hear something like that? I've heard people express those kind of sentiments. That's not the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is to everyone who believes. And the gospel is to be laid out indiscriminately. You know, when, when the sower went to sow the seed... He didn't stop and say, okay, but seed goes here, it doesn't go there. No, no. he was out in that, that expression of the gospel that Jesus gives. He's out and he's putting the seed indiscriminately here, there, and end on, on heart. And it does, long, but it does too. And indiscriminately, all people believe and be saved and when that they come to Christ. Now is the exception and been believed to him in salvation. And we're people. And on Friday, and he, he said, I should be going. Well, once he said that, he asked for it. I mean, he set it up by saying, I should be going to church. And I said, you should be coming here. I, 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 don't, I don't supply the competition. I said, you should be coming here. He said, I don't go to church. You should be coming here. And he said, I should be coming here. And he didn't come here. But he should be coming here. But he should be going where the gospel's preached. We should be going where we learn God's word. And we should receive the word with gladness. You have that wonderful picture, dude. Paul's preaching and they receive the word. Peter's preaching, they receive the word. Isn't it a coincidence? They're preaching and they receive. That's why Paul says to Tim, preach the word. Comes to this man. We don't know how much, but one thing for sure, he knew enough to come to hmm? enough to come to Jesus. You don't be saved. This is faith in Christ. We don't get examination. Comes later. When the person professes faith, say, Well, do you know enough? We want to know. Do you know the Do you know your need? You see the Lord of salvation, this man, and he saw the Lord, the Lord marveled at it. And if you had a faith on believer here this morning, marvels at, then you'll notice something. He will save you, him. And he is, if you would have him. Father, how wonderful this account is that shows us your grace and every blessing. And this centurion uh, didn't come with all his good works, he had nothing to offer, but he did come with his faith. He came with credentials that were no good for anything except for bragging rights to his friends in the Roman army. And but he came looking for the Lord, and he came in faith.
And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of those who are here who are outside of Christ. Physically, but they need to come spiritually looking for the Lord. They need to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. And when they seek him, they will find him. And how gracious you are, Lord God, to offer such a salvation. And we who are saved bow before you humbly, giving thanks this day and giving thanks for this wonderful account and yet a sobering account because it tells us as your people in this generation that we need to be wise servants and wise custodians of the gospel and take the name of Jesus with us and share it with everyone we encounter and help us, Lord, to be found faithful in your sight. And we, we give you thanks, Lord, there'll be that day when we'll be at the table. We'll be in glory. We'll be with you, free from sin and in your holy presence, and we will be thankful. We give you all the praise and glory, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.